This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. This is Taylor Stevens, New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve, <laughs> where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. No, it's not that you used my last name. <laughs> it's that you called me Steven that one time. Well, yes, that's true. Because <laughs> <laughs> when you said that, I'm like, wait a minute. That's that's not right. Something am, is wrong. Am I on your Am I on your bad list now? Why are you using my full name? You know, like when parents are like, you know, Christopher Michael Jones. Yes, and so Taylor, flashing back to last week's episode, you hinted that we would be talking about either a movie or television series again as as uh, as, as a way of gleaning some storytelling advice. So, what's it going to be this week? Okay, so uh, I have so much to say, and I think there's a potential that this is going to run long, so um, this is just going to be chit-chat too, but a couple nights back, I watched a movie where they got so much right, and I want to talk about it, because not because we had that episode a month or so ago about all the pet peeves on TV shows and the things that make me crazy. Uh, This isn't a fairness thing necessarily, although that would be a reason to discuss it. It's not the reason. The reason I want to talk about this movie specifically is because, at least for me anyway, watching it was like reading a book with my eyes. I mean, other than maybe a few unavoidable montage sequences, this story, it literally could have come straight out of a novel page for page, scene for scene, conversation for conversation. And most most movies just aren't like that, which is why most movies just don't make for good apples to apples comparisons. Movies and books are just drastically different forms of storytelling. And generally, it takes quite a bit of time and work to adapt a story from one and then make it work for the next. That's why movies are generally considered such poor representations of books, because you've got to take this very complex story and break it down and eliminate storylines and combine characters or whatever to make it work in this limited two to three hour time frame, right? And so there's because of all that, there's really only so far you can go in looking to movies for practical examples as novelists. And usually that relates to like story arcs, character arcs, genres, tropes, and just these other sort of umbrella type topics. But this particular movie, it was so book-like in the way that it was written and filmed that and they got so much right about it that I thought it provided like a very rare opportunity for an almost apples to apples comparison to get down on more specific topics. I'm going to try and do this with as few spoilers as possible. And I'm just going to beg you in forgiveness in advance for the goofs. And I will tell you spoiler alert, spoiler alert as much as I can, but there's no way to talk about this without 
going into details about it. But that said, this is a movie you've already seen a dozen times before. And by that, I mean, there is absolutely nothing. And I mean, nothing original about this plot. So basically, there's this older guy who used to be a real badass. And at some point, he quits his badass life for reasons. And now he's just out there in the world trying to live a quiet existence like every other average Joe. And then something happens, like, say, a random act of violence. And that triggers a series of cascading events that forces not-so-average Joe to pull on his badass pants again. And then the rest of the movie basically becomes a bloodbath of violence, comeuppance, and revenge. Does that sound familiar? Uh, it sounds like every <laughs> – is it Liam Nelson? Is that the guy's name? Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson um, and Charles Bronson. And, um, yeah, wow. Yes. Let's I mean, just that say is, that, that theme has been told a few times. Right. That is the basic plot to Con Air, The Equalizer, John Wick, Red, Unforgiven, Taken, Man on Fire. And those are just the ones I can think of right off the top of my head from the very small selection of movies I've seen. And, I mean, Hollywood loves this story. Audiences love this story. They've made it a bazillion times. And sometimes we even get a break from all the testosterone, testosterone, and we get to see that same story told from a female perspective, except that when it's an estrogen-driven story, the woman is always younger, and she's either currently active in her role as an assassin or an operative or a badass, or she needs to train to become that badass, which is different than the male version which the guy is older and the badassism is in his past. And Hollywood has to do this. They have to write the female-driven stories this way because, unfortunately, over yonder in them movie-making badlands, if a woman dares reach the ripe old age of 40, she, like, automatically dissipates into a cloud of smoke. So the only way that they can adapt <laughs> these types of movies for women is by, of course, using younger women. And that's how we get movies like Peppermint and Ava and Anna. And I'm sure there's a whole so many more of them. There's some that then take it off on a different uh, spin. Like you've got Atomic Blonde, Good Mary. I think it's called Good Mary. Um, where they're not really so much revenges, but they still become, you know, bloody revenge, blood, blood, bloodletting thing, whatever. Okay. So my point is you've seen this movie. You've seen it a dozen times. So I don't know how much I can actually spoil it <laughs> in that sense. But that's our first takeaway as novelists, is that the plot is really only a backdrop to the story. It doesn't matter if it's done, been done before, as long as you can take what's familiar and make it unique by giving it your own personalized spin and your own peculiar characters. Lesson number one. All right. This particular movie is called Nobody, and it's on Netflix, I think. And it's violent, it's bloody, it's graphic. If you have watched any of those movies that I just rattled off, you probably won't have a problem with it. But if you haven't seen any of those or you don't like action movies or revenge type stories, just don't go into it thinking of it as entertainment. Look at it more as a tutorial. And if you do like this type of movie, then you're probably gonna have to watch it twice. <laughs> you're gonna have to watch it first, first for enjoyment and then you're gonna have to watch it as a tutorial. Now, just to set the stage, because I know that Tastes are so varied, like they're all over the map. And, you know, people criticize one movie up and down and then this other half of people are going to love it. And I just don't want to be caught in that. So let me just make it real clear that there's nothing realistic about this plot. None of them are ever realistic. But 
you know, some of them are more realistic than the others. And, and they're realistic in different types of ways. So like in John Wick, for example, everything takes place in a world where assassins and assassin leagues are just a normal part of life. So basically it's an alternate reality. But the body movement, body control and the fight sequences are, at least from what I've heard from people who are experienced in these types of things, some of the most realistic combat type film shoots that have been done at to that point in time. So even though it's all in a world, an alternate reality, it has a sense, its form of realism comes from the combat fight sequences. And then like in a movie like The Equalizer, the reality of it comes from the real um, on the ground, every man way that this character uses everyday tools as weapons. And in the in Unforgiven, which is a Western and maybe not really the first movie that comes to mind and this whole assassin comes out of retirement story thing, this setting, this Western setting and the characters themselves and their dialogue and their interaction with each other, that's what creates that sense of realism. And in this movie, Nobody, it does such an amazing job at grounding every possible story element in realism that even the unrealistic stuff still feels pl completely plausible in the moment. And that's our second takeaway as novelists, is that you can get away with making up a whole lot of stuff as long as you keep your not made up stuff as real and accurate as possible. And that means doing your research, double checking your facts, even the ones you're sure you've got right, keeping your characters consistent and true to themselves and getting all your small details right. So like in the Monroe novels, for example, they are completely over the top, the characters. I mean, like that is not reality, but they are grounded in reality by the locations, the settings, the details, and the, and the characters. I do my best to keep the characters feeling as close to real as I can possibly get them. And so that itself, together, combined, is what keeps the over-the-top stuff from spinning off into, like, self-parody or just so stupid it's laughable and it's not even a thriller anymore. So every story is going to have its sense of realism that keeps it grounded in reality, even if it's just the laws of physics or something, you know, like keep it real so that the rest of it that isn't real still feels like it is. Okay. So in this particular version of this seen it before story, it starts near the end. And this is where we're going to start. We're getting close to spoiler territory, but not really because this is just the opening sequence. All right. Our main character, we'll just call him the hero. He's inside an interrogation room. And he's in handcuffs. And he looks like he's just had the crap beat out of him. And he reaches into his jacket and he pulls out a pack of cigarettes and he lights one. And he, you know, starts, he puts it in his mouth. And then he pulls out a can of tuna and he sets it on the table. And then he pulls out a can opener and he opens the can of tuna. And finally, he reaches into his jacket and he pulls out a kitten. And he sets the kitten on the table in front of the can. And this whole time, there's two interrogators there, and they're just watching him. Like, like, what is totally, what the bleep? 
look on their face. And then one of them says, who the hell are you? And he's like, me? I'm nobody. And that, my friends, is how you take a very cliched, badass, being interrogated scene and you turn it on its head. A can of tuna, a can opener, a kitten. And it's not a spoiler. <laughs> that is literally the opening sequence, and it probably shows up in the trailer, too. That is so and that's good. A, <laughs> I, I want to see is this our... <laughs> movie so badly now just from that. <laughs> that is our third takeaway as writers, that even cliches can feel new or at least be tolerable or even useful if you're able to adapt them and give them a new twist. And the rest of the movie continues in that vein. It's like that. It's just the same cliche flipping thing, building off tropes to drive the story and then suddenly turning them inside out. I said suddenly, but I meant subtly. Like it's not in your face about it. And the reason it works so well is that it is, for me anyway, this is my personal enjoyment level. I know everybody's different, but the reason that it works so well for me is that all, all this trope flipping, it was done without any fanfare, no over explaining, no pointing out the obvious just to make sure that the audience understood it because you're afraid that they're too stupid to catch what just happened. It's so much is just left implied. And I love that about this. I like, I, they just nailed that. So then after the interrogation room opening, we get a montage that establishes this very boring, mundane, dreary, suburban life of our average Joe. We meet his wife, we meet his teenage son, his grade school age daughter. And we basically in this montage see that our hero is an accountant, maybe at a small manufacturing plant. I think they wasted absolutely no time in trying to explain his job because what he does for a living, it doesn't really matter. We see that he runs regularly. He exercises. He forgets to take out the trash. He rides the bus to work. His office is this wood panel. Like it came out of the seventies and the furniture furniture is 40 years old at least. And Whatever his title is, it involves putting money amounts into spreadsheets. That's all we need to know. So that's all we get. And that is takeaway number four. And it's pretty self-explanatory, so I'm not going to belabor the point. And after that, we get the something happens. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What's takeaway number four? That this is all we need to know. So that's all. They don't go into a lot of detail. Trying to explain, you know, what it is he does or any, like, spend a lot of scene time with his interactions at the office. There's a little bit, but only to the point that it's necessary for the rest of the story to make sense. Gotcha. So next we get the something happens that sets off this chain of cascading events, which every one of these movies has. Right? And in this case, it's a home burglary of his home. And he could have done something about it, but he doesn't. Doesn't stop it. Doesn't hurt them. And the dialogue surrounding this scene is very sparse and very realistic. And this is basically the tone that the whole rest of the story is going to take on, is that we're relying nearly entirely on the characters' facial expressions, their body language, and all the stuff that's left unspoken to understand what's really going on, which is the first 10 minutes of the movie. And it's enough to set us up for everything that follows. So... I want to point out some specific stuff that this movie just did amazingly in terms of craft as it applies to to writing novels. But to do that, I have to head into spoiler territory. So here's your warning. And if you haven't seen the movie and you don't want me to potentially ruin anything, just stop now, come back later. I'm still going to try and keep it to a minimum, but it's just 
impossible not to go into detail. So the first thing that this movie did that just left me going, oh, what a breath of fresh air is the dialogue. It is brilliant dialogue for one simple reason, sheer economy of words. So much is left implied and so much that could be unnecessarily explained or clarified isn't. They just trust you to be smart enough to read between the lines. And here are a few examples. So this guy's married, right? We are never specifically told how much his wife knows about who he is or who he was or how they met or what their relationship was like before they were married. When that home invasion thing comes out and all the aftermath of it and people reacting to his lack of reaction, we see her react to it too. But it's a little ambiguous. You can't tell. Does she just think he's some poor, pathetic loser who didn't have the the guts to defend his family like all these extra characters are making it out to be? Or does she know something more? We don't know, right? We just see her react, and it, it's kind of, who knows? And then we finally, later in, as the story progresses, we see him come home all banged up. And his wife is like, oh, and he shows her his wounds. He's gotten stabbed and he's like, kind of like old times. That's that's the extent like that's how you know that. Oh, she actually does know who or what he is. And there's this scene later, much later in the story where he says to her, I remember what we were. I miss what we were. And then there's this one last instance where he asks her to trust him, but not in that cliched, which I hate way where the character's just like, you just have to trust me, but they don't give you any reason to trust them. But in this case, he tells her, blind trust one last time, I promise. And that's that's so few words, but it tells you everything you need to know about their relationship. And it makes the choices that she makes next make perfect sense for the character. There's no arguing. There's no, well, tell me this. She's just like, okay, we'll deal with our relationship later. And she's gone. And so you don't need to, just so much that most movies would just try and they'd show, they'd give you flashback sequences. They would have characters get into this long conversation. And it's, it's just this economy of words that you get a sense just enough to know, to infer what their relationship was and is, and it gives you everything you need to know to understand the present and nothing more. And that is just brilliant. Another way that they handled this is our hero has a father. And the father is an old man living in an assisted living facility. And we are never explicitly told what kind of relationship our hero has with his father. And for most of the movie, you're not even sure if the father is all there mentally. Because there are so few words exchanged between them. But the son will come and, you know, spend time with his father and watch TV with him in his little, you know, assisted living room. And and that's that's their relationship, sitting there, almost no dialogue between them watching TV. But what we do know is that our hero has a stash of weapons in the father's room. We don't know necessarily that the, the father knows about it. And at one point, when the hero goes to retrieve one of those weapons, he tells his dad, Something came up that I have to take care of. And dad just goes, like grunts, that's it. And then much later, 
as the story starts to take to pick up pace and things start happening, he calls his dad and he says, that thing I had to take care of got a bit out of hand, just a heads up. And that's it. That's that's the entire dialogue of those particular scenes. And it's just enough that by the time that plot really begins to come together, you have everything you need to know to understand the relationship between father and son as it pertains to this story. There's no going into detail about their history together because we don't need to know that. Not for the time frame of what this story allows, is that's not the focus of the story. And they didn't try and cram it in. They gave you just enough for the story to make sense. This minimalism at its absolute best. Another way that they handled this that I thought was just just same, just in awe of the way the economy of storytelling. And I think this is why it felt so book-like to me in watching it, is I could literally see page in print just getting visualized right there on the screens because they didn't go into all that unnecessary stuff the way that a lot of movies do with lots of cut scenes and you know back and forth and choppiness this is this it was also filmed very minimal minimalistically the settings were minimalistic it, the whole package just came together like that in this this consistent form and so this this movie, it doesn't waste any time showing us scenes from the hero's past to get his backstory. It's just filmed entirely minimalistically in the present. And so in movies, you really only have two viable means of communicating something to the audience. You need to know what made this guy who he is. And if you're not going to flashback and show it, you you've you've only you've got limited options. You have to provide something. You can't just not. Be, and, and if you're not going to catch the audience up to speed by showing those details through the flashbacks and cutaway scenes, your only other option is to have the characters convey it. And usually that means dialogue or some, some in-the-moment actions that are taking place to catch the reader up on this guy's backstory, right? And so usually, at least in the movies that I've seen, when you have characters discussing this person that they're trying to hunt or chase or kill or capture or whatever, you see someone do like this deep background digging on him. And then they will present that information as sort of like this visual dossier. You'll see it up on the big glass screens or someone will flip through papers or whatever. It's, it's like, here's this massive amount of info dumping and we're going to give it to you in 30 seconds, just so you know what's going on. And they could have done that here. I mean, the setup for it is in the movie. It, it's there. But instead, they follow this pattern of flipping tropes. And in this case, not one trope, but two, right at the same time, by having the character himself provide the background explanation, which in less capable hands, I mean, that would have easily turned into a, one of those like villain type monologues. But here it would have been a hero type monologue cliche. But instead, what they do, and I've never seen this done before, is they break the hero's explanation into two parts, like his backstory, him telling his backstory into two parts. Spoil, big, huge spoiler alert. I mean, major spoiler alert here, okay? So if you haven't already stopped, this would be your next stopping place. In the first of these instances that uh, that he's breaking up his backstory, it starts with one of, the one of his enemies echoing the question that started off the movie, who the hell are you, right? And so... 
And, and then the second time that it happens, that question isn't exactly articulated, but it's very clear that the question is being thought or asked. They, they want this explanation, right? And in both instances, our, the main character, he obliges by answering their questions. And he's very economical with his words. The explanation is short. And both times, it gets cut off before he can finish. Because both times, the person he's talking to is alive when he starts talking. And as he's talking, he realizes that they've died. So he just stops talking at that point, like just mid-sentence. Oh, the guy's dead. Okay, never mind. So it was a very unique way of very economically explaining where he came from and but doing it in a way that actually was not hey i'm going to give you a big speech that you're not interested in right now is like he's answering these questions and then the same thing happens both times and it just doing that just flips these tropes boom 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 right on their head and it's it's brilliant it's the brilliant storytelling because it takes the expected and makes it unexpected that's a gift <laughs> that is it's just so smart. Okay, so there are a lot more examples like that of how dialogue is kept down to its sparsest, just sparse minimum that leaves the audience just connecting the dots on their own. And I can't even begin to tell you how refreshing that was. And for me as a storyteller, because this is what I do, I just break down a story all the time. I cannot watch movies without seeing that. Right? I see it happening. I see when when people go on cliche, do cliches or go on these monologues or characters say unnecessary dialogue to each other. I know what's happening. They're informing the audience. I, I see it as a storyteller and I can also see, well, maybe there's just no other way to do it, but it's still annoying. And when it happens, it pulls me right out of the story. I can't help it. It just does. And maybe most people aren't bothered by it the way that I am, but that's, you know, mm. For me, it's not just entertainment. It is it is um, educational, right? And so in this movie, even those instances where I can see what's happening, I can see the, the story mechanisms, be, mechanisms being turned behind the scenes, they're still so perfectly aligned with the characters and the scene setup that it's like I couldn't find any fault with it. It just worked. So I really highly recommend watching this movie just for the dialogue, just for that alone to see an example of what doing it right looks like, not over-explaining, of, of using each word carefully, of providing just enough to give you a sense of who the characters are, what they want, what's going on inside them, and keeping the story moving. So another issue that I thought that this movie just handled absolutely brilliantly was establishing hero bona fides. And this is a character issue. It is one of several aspects that go into building a believable character and it's especially critical when you have like an over-the-top certified badass character. And making those characters feel real, and I guess this isn't something that I'm very familiar with <laughs> because this is this is right in my genre niche, right? It's kind of like a three-pronged spear of how you go about establishing these characters as authentic and real. And one, the first one is what the character says. So in the instance of this movie, we would apply that to the way that the character is relaying the details of his background to people who've asked him questions, right? what the character says. The second is what the character does. So that's all the physical fights and smarts and et cetera. But that usually doesn't kick in until after you already have a sense of who the character is. 
the bon- it's not really so much establishing that he's a badass as reaffirming or building off what you've already established. It's still very important. What the character does is one of the key ways that you make that character feel authentic and real, but it's not enough on its own. And then there's a third, which is far less discussed aspect, but just so critically important. And that is how other characters see or feel or react to your character. Is in all things, as in all things related to movies, the only way to accomplish all three of those things is to show them or speak them. But in books, we have a few more options because we have the ability to do a narrative and inner dialogue. But the principle of show versus tell is still the same. So when it comes to establishing a character as being this real badass, seeing or experiencing them in action is always going to feel more real and more fun than telling, which means that in a movie, that generally means flashback sequences. That's how you show it. But this one didn't do that. Instead, they use a technique that I absolutely love using in novels because I feel like it's one of the most effective ways to convey something about a character. And that's to show that character through the eyes of someone else. Uh, Here's why I love that so much and also why I think they did a brilliant job of handling that in this movie. The first is we talked about how what a character says, right? That's how you establish it. Well, a character can only say so much about themselves before it starts to become off-putting. They can say, like, what they're going to do to someone else is a threat, but that can only be used in small doses before it starts to feel annoying or it starts to feel like they're punching down. And a character can only describe their own skill set so much before they start sounding like an egotistical maniac. And we are not fond of braggarts. So that's a really fast way to kill the appeal of your character. You really have to tread lightly with all the I, 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 I that a character goes on about. So the more bragging the character does, the less we're going to trust them. And that's just kind of basic psychology. So how much a character can say about himself is limited in terms of establishing who they are as a person. And that's different than what a character says and does when interacting with other characters because that also reveals who they are. But in this case, we're talking about establishing themselves as the essence of how they are in the story. So the second way that we can do that is through the character's actions. But like I just said, the character's actions in the present are, that's really the modern, the present day story that that's not who they are were before. It's not where they came from. So unless you want to cut away for a flashback, it's that showing all that action isn't really going to do much to help with establishing what got the character here to this point. And it's not going to explain the way that other characters respond to him either. You You can see that response and know that, okay, well, sure, he's a badass in real time, but it doesn't answer the past, right? And and so between those two, there's this hole that, that doesn't get fully satisfied. And that's where this third option enters the equation, the equation. And that's the way that other people react to your character because of their past, which means they know this character or know something about this character from before. And this is such a huge, huge, huge part of establishing characters that really probably deserves its own episode. But that's another day. So in the more brief 
version of it. So like in John Wick, for example, when these car thieves, they, they steal, it's like in the part of the opening part of the movie, it's the, the event that spins everything, cascades everything down into this bloodletting thing. Okay. So they steal his car and they also do something else that's awful. And they bring his car to this chop shop and the owner freaks out when he sees it. He's like, do you know whose car you just stole? And he kicks them out. And then the same thing happens when other people start realizing what took place and who it happened to. They start freaking out. That is an example of establishing a character's bona fides before we even see, really see them in action. It's setting the scene. That's kind of what I'm talking about here, right? So the story itself, it's going to determine whether or not that technique is possible. Um, I find it to be particularly helpful in sequels when you've already gotten established history with the character and you need to find a way to summarize things for the new readers without boring people who've already heard it all in the previous books. So in the case of the Monroe stories, Monroe is usually the one I'm giving that treatment to. We want to see her through other people's eyes rather than have to rehash everything that happened in the prior books, right? So in The Innocent, Logan becomes the vehicle for establishing who he she is. We see her through his eyes first before anything else, and we get a sense of her from him and his beliefs and his thoughts and his fears about her, and the doll does this as well. Before we ever see Monroe in real time, we, we get an earful from Bradford's perspective, but even more concise and more extreme in the doll is we also get a one paragraph summary of how dangerous she is through the thoughts of the man who's just kidnapped her. So those are examples. And like, oh yeah. Okay. So like, I don't even know if it would have been possible for me to write the liars books, if not for being able to use this technique where I show Jack through Jill's eyes and Jill through Jack's eyes and Claire through both their eyes. So Unless you're actually thinking about story, like the underlying gears that are turning behind the curtains, when you're reading those, you it's probably invisible. But once you see it, it's impossible to unsee it. So much of a character development in those books, the liars' books, like what the audience perceives as understanding the characters, identifying with them, their fears, or disbelieving their um, disbelieving things about each other, just all of that. It comes from what other characters' actions and opinions are about that character. You don't see it until you see it. And then you're like, oh, my God, that's like all this story is. So in this movie, huge spoiler alert again, this is this this technique of establishing the character's bonfides is handled twice. And in the first scene, someone, he, he goes into a place where he's clearly not welcome. And there's looks like there's going to be a fight brewing. And someone in that group sees something that clues them in to who or what this guy really is. And that someone who sees it basically stands up. Yeah, he gets this look on us like, oh, oh, crap, look on his face. He stands up and he says something very respectful to the main character. And he walks straight out of the room and he locks himself in a safe room. You know, lock, lock, tumble, tumble. He's behind a steel door now. And that is a visual representation of, oh, hell no, F this. I'm not sticking around. Okay, thanks. Bye. Right. And then all the other people are like, okay, what the bleep just happened and who the bleep is this guy. And it just completely changes the dynamics of the scene. Right. So in the second time that this happens, there's someone who's been tasked with getting information on who he is so that 
the people who want to find and hurt him can know what they're dealing with. And that is what would have been the classic setup in most movies for here's a dossier. Let's explain our guy's backstory. Right. But they didn't do that. They flipped it upside down and they used this as another mechanism for establishing his badassery by the person. When they realize who this guy is, they basically just shut the computer, pack everything up, throw the dossier information on the floor to the guy who hired them, said, no charge. Here's your information. And they're just out of there. And you're like, okay, <laughs> this is the guy that started the movie saying, I'm nobody. And in on one of the dossier pages, it says nobody. <laughs> I'm like, what, what just happened? Right? So in total, those scenes of establishing who this character is, they might only represent two or three minutes of screen time, but they tell us more about this character's past and what to expect in setting up what's to come than any amount of dialogue or even flashback sequences could, which is why I love that technique so much. And it is works even better in novels because in novels, doing flashback sequences can be a little bit tedious, especially when they're long and drawn out. And doing this, it when the character does finally speak his few lines about who he is, who he was, and then gets cut off, he doesn't really have to say more. Because you've seen the reaction that these other people have to knowing who he is. They believe it. That's what you need to know. And all he's doing is filling in a few of the very basic details that we didn't get in those other characters' reactions to him. The one downside to this technique, you have to remember, is that it only works in multiple point-of-view stories. Because to be able to see a character through another character's eyes means that character has to have a point of view. So obviously it cannot work all the time, but I love using it because it just is so much more effective in conveying character than having the character talk about themselves or having to set up long sequences to establish it. There's so much more in that movie that I could go on about, but we are out of time. So I'm just going to stop there on it. And I'm going to say, don't go into that movie as entertainment. If you like that type of movie, it is very highly entertaining. It's very well done. It's, they got the realism right on multiple aspects as well in, in the fight sequences and stuff. But just go into it as a tutorial. Look at it at how the characters reveal themselves. Look at how your expectations are set up for who these characters are and how you come away at the end thinking that they are. Look at how the plot points are kept to a minimum, but they all tie back together. And there's nothing left unthreaded. Everything that's in there has meaning. Everything matters. It all counts for something. And it's done so economically. Probably it was very filmed economically, too. This was not a big budget movie, but it doesn't feel small budget because of the way it's written and the way it's acted and the way it's filmed. And that's all I got. Before we started um, recording this, I actually looked it up to see what the budget was for the movie. It was 16 million. <laughs> that's almost nothing. That's almost yeah. nothing in movie dollars. Yeah. That's yeah. Crazy. It is the way that, and, and you know, I, I, we can't spend another hour breaking it down here, but I could see it as, as I was watching it going, Holy crap. 
the, the choices that they made to make this happen are, are just stunningly brilliant. And that is why I'm like, this is a book. This is a book on the page. This is, a, this is the page on the screen, you know, like, oh, my God. That, that's yeah, it was it is not a big budget movie at all, but it's so well done for the money. And and the, I mean, it's got recognizable actors in it. The, the the main actor is the guy from Better Call Saul, I think. I've never seen it, but part of that Breaking Bad spinoff. And then Christopher Lloyd uh, from Back to the Future. We all know him as Crazy Professor. He played the, the dad. And, you know, so they're not complete unknowns. All of them aren't. But the, they were all very good actors. So it was it was. Yeah, they, they did well for a $16 million budget. I'll just say that much. <laughs> oh, this was this was really, really good. I, and I would love for us to do another show. You mentioned the possibility of doing another show about just kind of developing a badass character, which is kind of what you do. Uh, so this has been kind of a tutorial, but be, it would be fun at some point in the future to take it a little bit deeper. So we can look forward to that. And this, this has been a really fun show. So uh, thank you for that. And I, I really want to see this movie. Uh, uh, hopefully after all that, you like it. But if you don't, it's just a tutorial. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and with that, we, right. we are finished. So thank you guys for listening. We will be back with you again next Tuesday. Thanks for being here, guys. See you next week.